Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for coming out today. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's an honor to welcome to our college uh, Father White, who came here through much hill and dale and ice and snow this morning. Uh, just to give a brief introduction to the talk here today held uh, in honor of our patron, St. Thomas Aquinas, as is an annual tradition here at Christendom College. Uh, Father White is a Dominican priest from the Dominican House of Studies. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and he attended uh, Brown University, majoring in religious studies, and there experienced a conversion to the Catholic faith, uh, largely through the reading of Flannery O'Connor. Uh, thereafter, he studied theology at Oxford University, earning the DPhil, and then uh, went on to become uh, the author of a book, which is called Wisdom in the Face of Modernity, a study in Thomistic Natural Theology, which concerns metaphysics and the natural knowledge of God. He is a member of the Pontifical Faculty of St. Thomas Aquinas, and his talk today will be on how the resurrection of Christ illumines human reason from Benedict XVI to Thomas Aquinas. Thank you, Father White, for coming. Thank you very much. I should just like to thank uh, the faculty who invited me and the administration who have so graciously hosted me today and uh, tell you I am really happy to be here and it's been a, it's been a great visit. The talk is a standard academic talk. You have the beginning which has the dramatic narrative se section which is not near as dramatic as it uh, aspires to be and if you make it through that we get to the substance of the thing. So. How does the resurrection of Christ illumine human reason from Benedict XVI to St. Thomas Aquinas? But you will say all the apostles thoroughly believed that Christ rose from the dead and really ascended to heaven. However, the resurrection of Christ from the dead was in reality spiritual. It was revealed to the disciples that Christ had risen from the dead just insofar as he gave in his life and death a matchless example of holiness. Moreover, he, to this extent, raises his disciples from the dead insofar as they follow the example of his own moral life and death. It would not be difficult to explain the whole gospel doctrine on this hypothesis. The quote I've just read to you provides an adequate summary of the thought of Rudolf Bultmann, the 20th century exegete of Marburg, Germany, who sought to reinterpret the miracles of the gospels as mere symbols or mythological outward expressions of inward spiritual events. Jesus of Nazareth's personal authenticity and heroicism in the face of death were perceived by his disciples as a unique example of how to live in faith, even in the face of our own finitude and guilt. The disciples expressed this idea with the symbolism of resurrection. For Bultmann, the physical resurrection of Jesus, a physical resurrection, is radically implausible, as he famously stated, to quote him, it is impossible to make use of electric light and other amenities of the modern era, and at the same time believe in the New Testament's spirits and miracles. In other words, in an age of modern science, we need to reinterpret the New Testament to uncover its moral and existential significance delivered from the trappings of the supernatural. However, the opening citation that I read to you summarizing Bultmann's views was not written in the age of electronic light bulbs. 
and is not the result of an emergent modern scientific prowess. In fact, the citation is from Benedict Spinoza in a letter written in 1662 to Henry Oldenburg, Protestant theologian and secretary of the Royal Society. And this letter was circulated throughout Europe and became very well known because he denied the physical resurrection. Spinoza's skepticism about the resurrection may well have contributed to the rise of the scientific age as his philosophy was deeply influential in early modernity. But his view of miracles was not the result of the discoveries of Newton or Darwin or Einstein. It was the result of a philosophical stance. Spinoza is concerned at base with the question of true enlightenment. What is it that frees human reason to reach the pinnacle of authentic understanding? For him, the answer is found in philosophical naturalism. The scientific study of the inherent causes of nature is the only legitimate path to an authentic understanding of reality, and thus appeals to supernatural events, divine revelation, miracles, prophecy, the incarnation, the physical resurrection. These are distractions from anything we could call true learning. Scholars debate whether Spinoza is to be understood as a kind of pantheist or as an atheist, but in the end, it perhaps comes to the same thing. For him, the physical world is the sum total of all reality, and we approach reality realistically when we analyze physical events according to their natural causes and effects. All other thinking is unenlightened and therefore pre-modern. From Spinoza to Kant to David Strauss to Rudolf Bultmann, in the 20th century, we can draw a straight line. The modern academy is seen as a place for the study of empirical science allied with a liberal ethic of political egalitarianism. And all that stands in the way of this progress, however well-intentioned, is in some way antiquated and obscurantist. This means, by the way, you and me, the Roman Catholic Church. It should be noted, meanwhile, that the Holy Office in 1669 banned the publication of Spinoza's Tractatus Theologico-Politicus in the region of the Italian states, in which he argues, in that book, against the existence of miracles. And they did so, not least because of that precise quote I read to you from the letter to Oldenburg 17 years before. So the antipathy between naturalism and Roman Catholicism, which is... Um, in the ascendancy, let us say, in the contemporary academic world, is old. I mean, if you consider 300 years old. 330 years later, after that ban by the Holy Office, in 1999, a different Benedict, now known, then known as Joseph Bradsinger, the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, or the Holy Office, was invited to give a paper in the Sorbonne an institution which had heeded the call of Spinoza and had, for all intents and purposes, banned Catholic priests from teaching any subject in the university, at least since the time of the Third Republic, which began in 1870. And that ban continues to this day. So you can imagine getting invited to speak in the Sorbonne if you're the head of the prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith in Europe has fantastic symbolic connotations. Appropriately enough, then, Ratzinger chose to speak to his audience on the topic of true enlightenment under the provocative title, The Truth of Christianity. And interestingly, the essay was published in substantial part the following day in the front pages of Le Monde, The World, 
that most anti-clerical of French newspapers. With his characteristic finesse, Ratzinger argued in this essay that early Christianity brought about a true enlightenment of human reason within the context of ancient pagan religion, and that it did so in great part by employing classical philosophy to defend and explain Christianity. Thereby, exalting philosophy in some real sense above mere human religious traditions, or at least certain forms of them. So in other words, I mean, the Enlightenment philosophers arrived late on the scene by claiming that philosophy has a supremacy to religious tradition. The Christians were the ones who first insisted on this. When Ratzinger turned to modernity, however, he noted the crisis of reason that has occurred in the wake of the Enlightenment. Christianity exalted philosophy above mere human religious traditions, but philosophy in turn dethroned Christian theology in the Enlightenment age as the queen of the sciences. However, in the absence of a supernatural vocation, philosophy herself has been, her, has been in turn overthrown by physics, chemistry, and biology, the true sciences of our age. Today, then, we inhabit a world, so Ratzinger argues, of empiricism and postmodern pluralism. There's a decidedly diminished confidence in universal rationality in our world today. Facts can be discovered and quantified. Deeper explanations of reality have become a question of one's personal tastes and subjective perspective. Ask yourself, after all, what truth is there that binds, today, binds together today all the disciplines in a contemporary secular university? What do they all presuppose across the departments? Mm, scientific facts, maybe. What truth is there that binds together all of civil society on a legal level in terms of a moral philosophy or that gives metaphysical guidance to a global human community? What role does philosophy itself now play in contemporary thought as a mainstream arbiter of the sense of experience and existence? In the wake of the triumph of Spinoza's naturalism, the temptation is to transform philosophy into a mere handmaid of the empirical sciences, the global market economy, and the advance of technology. Ratzinger then asked, if it is not Christian revelation that today should also seek to enlighten a diminished post-Christian ethos, seeking once again to establish the primacy of reason, or logos, for in the beginning was the logos, and all things were made through him. He proposed three features of Christianity that we must appropriate anew today if we are to show the intrinsic truth of Christianity, its rationality. The first is the metaphysical truth of Christianity. It provides an intelligent understanding of the mystery of God, of the origins of the world as created, of the exceptional nature of the human being made in the image of God, and of the final destiny of the human person. In, sh in short, Christianity gives ultimate perspective on the meaning of things seen in light of God, the first principle. It is an ultimate form of wisdom. Secondly, Christianity is historical in just the way that the myths of the non-Christian religions are not, however profound these myths may be. Ancient Israel and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the historical church that is universal or Catholic, these are historical realities that are not mere symbols or ideas. God has engaged with us in history, in the sacramental economy, and we have this unique truth to contend with as part of the rationality of our religion. It's historically grounded. 
Last, the moral teachings of Christianity, the Logos who became flesh, invites us to a greater rational scrutiny of our moral lives and bestows on us a wisdom about how to live in the light of the mysteries of the cross and resurrection. This wisdom can shape our lives in a higher and greater way than the wisdoms of the non-religious ethos of modern secularism. <clears throat> so, I mean, metaphysics, uh, history, and uh, moral wisdom as sort of three grounds of Christian rationality in a modern secular world. Though I summarize, the core challenge of the argument is striking. Articulate to modern persons the inherent rationality of the mystery of faith, the, the ultimate purification of the intelligence, and true enlightenment comes from the revelation given in Jesus of Nazareth. <clears throat> okay, so that was the introduction. We began by considering Spinoza's refusal of the mystery of the resurrection based upon skeptical naturalistic principles. Appeals to supernatural causes, miracles, etc. All of this is a distraction from true knowledge, against which I have turned to a second Benedict, who argues precisely the opposite. The supernatural mystery of the faith casts light upon our human condition to renew our human reason. What then, following Benedict XVI, should we say about the resurrection of the dead? How does the resurrection of Christ illumine our human condition? Joseph Ratzinger asked this question himself in his 1977 study on the last things, entitled Eschatology, Death, and Eternal Life. And there he made a very interesting claim, and one which brings us to St. Thomas Aquinas. Ratzinger argues in that work that it is the mystery of the resurrection, principally that of Christ, but also that promised to all humanity, that invited Christianity to, to rethink at a profound level philosophically and metaphysically what it means to be a human person. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus stands at the origins of a new philosophical enlightenment as regards what it means to be a human being. This enlightenment, we are told, took place especially within the thought of the 13th century philosopher and theologian St. Thomas Aquinas. Before we tend to Ratzinger's treatment of this topic, let us take a short digression back from historical religion into the world of myth, namely the myth of the Sphinx and the question that it poses to us. Now the Sphinx, as you know, was an ancient Egyptian symbol, a mythological creature, part woman, part lion, part bird or god. It is not clear what exactly it denoted within the context of ancient Egyptian religion. The Greek culture, however, seized hold of it as an image due to their admiration of the antiquity of Egyptian civilization, which they realized preceded them, and they integrated the figure of the Sphinx into their various arts. In the well-known scene of Oedipus Rex, Sophocles depicts the Sphinx standing guard over Thebes as a riddle maker who asks a question of all who pass down the road. He who cannot answer the riddle is killed. What walks on four legs in the morning two in the day, and three in the evening. To which Oedipus answered correctly, it is man who walks on four legs as a child, on two as a fully grown adult, and then in old age, using a cane, walks on three. Indeed, the story has several levels. At one level, how, uh, at least, it is concerned with the tyranny of mortality. 
Confronted with the monster who is death, man asks himself what he is in his youth, in his prime, in his physical decline. What are we composed of? What are we made for? What, we, what may we hope for? What happens to us when we expire in death? The question stands before us on the road and burdens us. In his Summa Theologiae, Prima Secundae, question 85, article 6, Thomas Aquinas approaches the, this question in his own way. There he asks, pertinently enough, whether it is natural that we die. Is death natural to man? Now he's discussing here the uh, question of the effects of sin upon the human person. In answer to his question, Aquinas distinguishes. In one respect, it is natural to the human being to die, and this is due to the physical composition of our body. All material things in the physical world we inhabit are mixed bodies composed of diversified elements. Because of this complexity, these same bodies are subject to substantial change or alteration. All physical bodies come into being through generation and cease to be through substantial corruption. This is true for living beings as well as inanimate objects. The unity of the animal body can be ruptured from without by material changes from external agencies, agents like catching a, a virus or being uh, killed by a predator, and from within by the corruption of the internal material component parts, the organs, heart disease, collapse of lungs, what, what have you. In short, Aquinas says, to have a material body is to be naturally subject to corruption. It is natural to all living things, then, that they die. Human beings are no exception. On the other hand, however, there is something unique about the animal that is human. He or she alone has a rational soul, intrinsically endowed with immaterial faculties of intellect and will, themselves not intrinsically dependent upon physical organs of the brain or the body for their very being. The soul itself, which houses these faculties of knowledge and love, is itself substantially spiritual and therefore incorruptible. What's more, for Aquinas, the spiritual soul is the form of the body. That's to say, there's a substantial unity of the body and soul. I am not merely my soul, nor merely my body, nor two substances somehow juxtaposed and composed, united accidentally, Rather, I am one being that is a form-matter composition of body and soul. We are each of us rational animals, living bodies, who are essentially spiritual persons. Consequently, to die for the human animal is different. It entails the separation of the physical body from the spiritual soul. The physical body undergoes corruption while the spiritual soul, which is incorruptible, continues to subsist without the body. Now this state of being a personal being subject to the rupture of body and soul by their separation is itself, Aquinas says, unnatural. Because the human being is naturally a single composite of the two, it is natural for the human body to be informed by the spiritual soul, to be the, the body of a spiritual, rational, free human person. It is natural for the soul to be embodied, to be the soul of a rational, free animal who is capable of walking about communicating intelligently, marrying by choice, praying to God, and so forth. This means that the human being is philosophically a kind of irresolvable paradox, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, a locked box 
that can only be opened from without, not by the resources of our own natural reason alone. For we can see, even on we can see on the one hand, that it's normal and natural that we animals die, and on the other hand, even philosophically, so says Saint Thomas, we can see that it is unnatural for a spiritual animal to die. To preserve our unity, our life in unity, then it would require an extrinsic aid, what Saint Thomas the theologian will call a grace of preservation of the body from death by a power transcending our mere human nature, by a power of grace, so that we might be able to live, quote-unquote, naturally, free from death. And this is, of course, what Aquinas teaches is the case for the first human beings, our original ancestors, in the state of original justice. They were rational animals created in grace, elevated preternaturally, into a state of natural integrity, such that they could be preserved from death if they did not sin against the graces of God. And alas, we know how that story unfolded. What's interesting about Aquinas' metaphysical vision of death is that it helps us with the naturalistic story of evolution told by modern science, paleology, and genetic research. From a Thomist point of view, at least, it poses little problem for Catholic theology to hold that living things did develop progressively over four billion years from the humble single-celled bacteria into complex mammals through an evolutionary process. And in fact, it would be strange to suggest that God could not work through such a scenario providentially de facto. Thus, it is at least possible that God could have raised up the human body from the dust of the earth. When we reach the emergence of human rationality and free will, however, we know that the scriptures and the church, but also, as I'm arguing, or at least alluding to, sound philosophy oblige us to posit the emergence of a new principle, rational spiritual life, the spiritual soul. The new presence of the soul created in each human person by God immediately, ex nihilo. So based on this scenario, God fashioned our first parents from the evolutionary dust of the earth, but at some point, what is called hominization occurred when God began to infuse the homo sapiens with a spiritual rational soul. What then are we to make of human death that entered the world through sin, in the words of St. Paul? Aquinas' vision elides quite nicely with the one I've just sketched out. The original grace of the, of the first human couple elevates the animal body, making it subject to the spiritual form of the soul. Had we not sinned, we could have, in a mysterious way, been preserved from death by grace. But the original sin causes us to lose this grace extrinsic to our nature, thus relegating man to rely upon the, the, solely upon the principles of his inherent nature. And in this fallen state, it is natural that we as animals should die based on the principles of our own body. But also that in this fallen state, the spiritual soul naturally should mourn death and man should become a riddle to himself, an enigma unresolved. And so pagan man, without revelation, does indeed stand before the Sphinx. How is the soul to live on after death? In what state? What does it mean that we should be spiritual beings and yet have a body subject to death? Is the body a mere prison or holding ground for the soul waiting to be released into flight, as Plato suggested, as Plotinus suggested? If so, will we return to embodied life through reincarnation, as each of them also indicated? 
Will we be better off forever without a body? Is the body a hindrance to our spiritual flourishing? How do we resolve these questions? For religious human beings without the knowledge of original sin or the revelation of the resurrection from the dead, these are inevitable questions and questions difficult to resolve. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is speaking of the resurrection of the body, Aquinas notes, this is really interesting, that philosophically speaking, St. Thomas says, it's difficult for human beings to maintain the immateriality of the soul, even rationally, without knowledge of the resurrection of the physical body. For if the dead do not rise, or if we do not know that they rise, what exactly is the purpose of having a spiritual soul that sojourns only for a time in a physical body, only in turn to be released from it, and seemingly forever? Why would embodied existence take place at all if there is a spiritual soul, and yet we die unto a permanent separation of the two? And so St. Thomas goes on to say, it's somewhat normal that those Gentile philosophers who wish to maintain the spirituality of the soul, such as Plato, also often believed in reincarnation. Not that it's perfectly rational to believe in reincarnation. Aquinas argues vehemently that it is not. But that belief does help the pagan philosophers explain at least one thing. If the soul lives on after death, and if, and if the soul is meant for embodiment, which indeed it is, then it's normal to expect that the soul should again be eventually rejoined with the body. Of course, the problem with such a view is that if you hold to reincarnation, there can be no personal continuity of identity across the ages from body to body. The reincarnated Plato is a different personal individual from the soul who was once, let us say, uh, Theseus. We see here in Aquinas, then, the diagnosis of a twofold illness that results from the widespread lack of belief in the, in the resurrection. Either the denial of any form of human immortality through thoroughgoing materialism or a form of, of religious spiritualism that affirms a spiritual element in man, a soul, but which considers our individual personal uh, human personhood to be merely ephemeral. For when we die and the separation of the body and soul occur, the human person qua person, qua personal, does not survive death. And that's a pretty stark choice to be left with in the absence of belief in the resurrection, either sheer materialism or uh, some kind of immortality without personal existence. The belief in the resurrection, meanwhile, invites us to a different, I keep emphasizing this, philosophical vision of natural reason. The body is an essential component of human identity and is present even in the resurrected life, reconciled with the immaterial soul of the person so as to constitute the resurrected human being, who is one person, body and soul, albeit in the resurrected state, utterly transformed. Okay, so having considered this riddle of the Sphinx, let us return to Ratzinger's treatment of the resurrection in his book in 1977. Now there, as I stated, he claimed that Aquinas offers us a, a viable way forward in thinking about the status of what a human person is. Aquinas' metaphysics of personhood is decidedly influenced by the mystery of the resurrection, which is precisely what I've been talking about. So you might think that Ratzinger was appealing in particular to the ideas I've just been discovering, that we can really only understand the mystery of our human nature as a mortal body and an immaterial soul 
in light of the doctrines of original sin and the universal uh, resurrection revealed in Christ. However, in his book, this is not the central concern of Ratzinger's uh, study or treatment. Because he's facing down a very different challenge, and one that we have not yet considered. In 1958, the Lutheran theologian and exegete Oskar Kuhlmann wrote a book that was to become especially influential in modern German theology, both Catholic and Protestant. Kuhlmann's book is called Immortality of the Soul or Resurrection from the Dead, The Witness of the New Testament. If you want to sell books, I suppose it's good to put a, a clear disjunctive right in the title, and then everybody is realizing they're going to have to read the book to find out. Notice the juxtaposition that the title contains, suggesting the question, does the New Testament teach a doctrine of personal immortality? No, says Coleman. Rather, it teaches a doctrine of resurrection from the dead. Now, the idea here, far from the thinking of Bultmann, where I began, is that the Semitic mentality of the Old and New Covenants is utterly concrete in its fashion of thinking. The human being, according to the Bible, according to the Judaic mind, you might say, is one concrete natural entity, subject to death and therefore to total disillusion. And the human being can be resurrected from the dead as an entire entity only by the power of God. Immortality, then, freedom from death, is not something innate to us or possessed by a right. It's not something inherent to our nature, even the nature of our soul. It's a sheer gift. It's a grace of resurrected life. Concern with the immateriality of the soul, by contrast, is not biblical, according to Coleman, but, de but developed within the Greek philosophical tradition. It's therefore a pagan idea adopted by the Greek and Latin church fathers as an apologetic ploy or as a piece of uneasy theological syncretism. This problematic Hellenization of the gospel in some way adulterates the pure truth of salvation given in Christ and requires in our own age a corresponding de-Hellenization that must recapture the biblical truth of the essential unity of the human person. We can give up on attempts, then, to demonstrate philosophically the immateriality of the human soul and the realism of Aristotelian hylomorphism. Modern materialism is in its own way quite compatible with biblical anthropology. But what the gospel reveals to us is that the material substance that we are is one that is redeemed in Christ for the miraculous gift of everlasting life through resurrection from the dead. And Coleman is not a skeptic about physical resurrection, so he's sort of the polar opposite to Bultmann. Bultmann's spiritualizing everything into mere symbols of inward spiritual events. Coleman is materializing everything and uh, sort of emphasizing the idea of a holistic resurrection. Everything dies, everything is raised. Now, Coleman was not alone in taking this theological stance. One finds something akin to it in the thinking of Karl Barth, uh, the contemporary, still, still alive, uh, Lutheran theologian Jürgen Moltmann, and a host of other modern Protestant theologians. The most noteworthy and influential version, however, is that which was advanced by the Catholic theologian Karl Rahner in his famous essay, The Intermediary State, published in the 17th volume of his Theological Investigations. The views he espouses there trace back to ideas Rahner first developed in the 1950s. Interestingly, while writing about the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Rahner only had ever one book 
that he was forbidden to publish back in the crusty 50s. And it was a book on the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary after the Declaration of the Dogma. And it had to do with a Heideggerian reading of what it meant to die, using the Virgin Mary as an example of what it meant to undergo total death and total resurrection. Um, and it, uh, it did not make it. So it's interesting, though, because it's actually indicative of a lot of what he thinks. So it's, um, I think they publish it now in German. They should translate that in English, because you can reread the whole corpus of his writings in light of that idea. But anyway, okay. His essay, The Intermediary State, asks the question of what happens to the soul between death and general resurrection. That's why it's intermediary. The, de the body, the soul, as it were, um, uh, separated from the body and prior to the general resurrection. This is the state where there transpires such momentous events as final judgment, purgatory, beatification, but also, of course, damnation. What is striking is that Rahner follows the 20th century German theological trend in asking whether we really ought to consider the claim of the immaterial soul part of the classical teaching of the scriptures and of normative Christian doctrine. He wants to maintain a Catholic insistence on judgment that occurs immediately after death because he knows this is taught at the Council of Trent and he wants to uphold the teaching of the Council of Trent that we undergo judgment immediately after we die. But he wants to wed to that idea the idea of our total self-loss in the destruction and death in view of a total resurrection that occurs only by the grace of Christ. And so he develops what would subsequently be called the theology of death in resurrection. Before the reality of death, according to Rahner, we confront our own being toward nothingness, that's the famous phrase of being unto nothingness, phrase of Heidegger, and thus we pass in an awareness of our own finitude before the judgment of God. We are invited in the process of dying to conform ourselves freely to the grace of Christ, to his mystery of death and resurrection, which alone can deliver us from our utter finitude. The life of the resurrection in Christ is open to us then immediately upon dying. Did you hear what I just said? Huh? The life of the resurrection in Christ is open to us then immediately upon dying. Gone, gone is the idea of a separated soul that subsists apart from the body and that is subject to judgment and heaven or hell independently of the body. There is no intermediary state. Rather, death and resurrection follow upon one another immediately and pertain to the whole human person. You die and you rise immediately. This is behind part of the reason the German, the German bishops' conference, I don't want to, you know, increase any paranoia about bishops' conferences, you know, but the, the German bishops' conference removed indica uh, 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 the language of the spiritual soul from the burial rite in the post-Vatican II uh, German-speaking uh, rite of the liturgy. And I think they've been putting, I think they've been putting it back in, in the last couple of years, or praying for the soul of the deceased, partly because of the influence of this theology. So the claim here is that the doctrine of the immaterial soul is untrue and obscures our understanding of the mystery of human existence. It is within the context, it is within this context that Ratzinger's remarks about the teaching of Aquinas are of particular pertinence. You see, he's bringing Aquinas back up. His, his real interlocutor is Rahner and the, and the other German Protestant theologians about total death and resurrection theory. So permit me here an extensive quote where he uh, in, uh, invokes Aquinas. This is Ratzinger. The decisive step 
was the new understanding of the soul which Thomas Aquinas achieved through his daring transformation of the Aristotelian anthropology. In Thomas's interpretation of the formula anima forma corporis, the soul is the form of the body, both soul and body are realities, only thanks to each other and is oriented toward each other. Though they are not identical, they are nevertheless one, and as one they constitute the single human being. This insight carries with it a twofold consequence of a remarkable sort. First, the soul can never completely leave behind its relationship with matter. That's what Aquinas talks about, saying the soul endures in the immaterial state, sort of relative to the body. If it belongs to the very essence of the soul to be the form of the body, then its ordination to matter is inescapable. What thus emerges is an anthropological logic which shows the resurrection to be a postulate of human existence. Secondly, the material elements out of which human physiology is constructed receive their character of being body only in virtue of being organized and formed by the expressive power of soul. The individual atoms and molecules do not as such add up to the whole human being, just as the soul is defined in terms of matter, so the living body is wholly defined by reference to the soul. Here is the core of Ratzinger's response to modern German eschatology. The doctrine of the immaterial soul is of central importance to the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. In it, we can locate essential ties between a theology of the resurrection on the one hand and our metaphysics of human personhood on the other. For according to Aquinas' hylomorphism, the soul, every human soul, is the soul of a given body, a given individual body, a soul made for this body here as the form of that body to be one substance. And two truths follow from this fact. First, even if the soul subsists after death, the history of the soul is never complete apart from the body. It remains for and toward corporeal existence in an ontologically inextricable way. Second, however, and this is the key point, the soul is that which guarantees to the body a continuity of personal identity before and after death. The resurrected body from the dead is the body of a given person who has lived and died, and of that same person now resurrected from the dead because it is the glorified body of a person having a subsistent immaterial soul, which is a personal soul with personal faculties of intellect and will. The body reunited with the soul that has these spiritual faculties, faculties that endure even after death, uh, uh, the, the soul, sorry, the soul is reunited, the body is reunited with the soul that has spirit, these spiritual faculties, faculties that endure even after death and which constitute the core spiritual components or rational qualities of immaterial personhood. That may have sounded a little metaphysical. Let me restate the idea negatively in a more dramatic fashion to make it quite clear. If a person dies and has no immaterial soul and undergoes substantial corruption, then there's a total annihilation of the person at death. In this case, the resurrection implies a substantial entire reconstitution of a person whether this were to occur immediately after death, as with Rahner, or at the end of the ages. I think Pope John XXII speculated such an idea, and it was Dominican theologians who pointed out to him that 
he ought not to teach it authoritatively. However, if this is the case, it is in fact ontologically true. I mean, if, if there's total annihilation, total reconstitution. If this is in fact the case, it is in fact ontologically true that one individual material substance is entirely corrupted at death and another is entirely created in the resurrection. Because there's no intrinsic principle of continuity between the two subjects. We might contrive a thought experiment in which God recreates a person entirely with all the qualitative and quantitative features of his or her former life. But in this case, the very substance of the person as such is nevertheless entirely new. I might act quite viciously in this life and forsake the grace of God culpably and undergo substantial corruption in death. But in order that God's just judgment might transpire then, another individual must be recreated substantially who is condemned to eternal damnation based on my actions. He may have many features that resemble mine. You might not be able to tell him apart from me, looking at him, even very closely. But strictly speaking, it's a different substance. It's a different person. In my stead, then, another must be created to suffer the punishment of sin, or by contrast, to obtain my gift of beatitude, merited in the order of grace. What Ratzinger is showing, then, is that Aquinas' balanced ontology safeguards the traditional teaching and practice of the church. We pray for the souls of the faithful departed. We offer for those who die the sacrifice of the mass. We implore the saints, now mere souls, apart from their human bodies, to intercede for us in heaven. But their story is our story, too, a story of hope in the mystery of everlasting life, even after death in the purification and beatification of the human soul, but also in the eventual reconciliation of body and soul in the resurrection that is to come. Without a doctrine of the resurrection, it is difficult to take seriously the metaphysical unity of body and soul that Aquinas saw so vividly. But without a belief in the incorruptibility of the soul, it is also difficult to maintain the doctrine of the resurrection. For it is Aquinas' hylomorphic doctrine that allows us to see that the soul assures the continuity of our personal identity through life, death, life after death, and resurrection from the dead. The soul is a key principle underlying the philosophical rationality of the story of humanity as an eschatologically oriented story, as a story that only God can resolve, as a riddle that only God can answer, and that finishes only at the end of the world, because only God can raise the dead. It is also this doctrine of the immateriality of the soul that gives the ecclesial communion in which we live its widest scope, in this world, but also in the world to come. We are bound to those who have lived and died before us, for whom we pray, because of our common anthropological inheritance as spiritual animals. And finally, it is this hylomorphic realism about the soul as the form of the body which makes this eschatological hope in the resurrection rational. Not in the sense that we might prove the resurrection from the dead by the powers of natural reason, for we cannot, but it is philosophically rational to hope in the resurrection from the dead, just as it is rational to hope always, even naturally, were it possible, to be a unity of body and soul in no way subject to death or corruption. For, after all, it is, natural not to want to, it is natural to want not to die. 
And just because it is natural to want not to die, in part because we have an immaterial soul, that we want to be united with our body, so it can never be shown to be irrational to hope for the resurrection from the dead, even if reason cannot prove that we will rise from the dead. The resurrection of Christ answers then a very basic human desire and need to solve the riddle of the Sphinx, to understand our final destiny as spiritual persons. For we aspire to immortality and knowledge of God, and we are simultaneously mortal and bound to the labors of illness and death. Hope in this situation is a paradox. We must turn to the source of all that is, the creator of the world who can bring what is even from what is not, who can create from nothing, and we must hope that he can raise the dead. Christ alive in the resurrection is the response of God to a deep, innate longing in the heart of man. So now let me just conclude briefly. Let me conclude with the following idea. There is at the heart of our culture a struggle to define the core identity of Western civilization, a struggle that is being waged by the cathedral on the one hand and by the university on the other. Each has a story to tell about what is ultimate in the life of man. The cathedral bases that story on the mystery of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and upon the grace of the seven sacraments. At the center is the Eucharist, which sustains among us the presence of the glorified Christ. The secular university, meanwhile, offers us confidence in the empirical sciences above all else, allied with the politics and ideology of liberalism. At the center is a primacy of self-determination, an autonomy that extends not only into the order of rights and values, but even into the speculative domain the right to determine for oneself what the content of nature is, or even the character of truth itself. However, this dichotomy, as we know, did not always exist. In medieval Christendom, the university was founded around the cathedral, and at its heart was the mystery of sacred worship and of the presence of Christ in the Most Holy Eucharist, a culture of learning and of embodied living grounded in and orchestrated around the visible worship of God. We began by suggesting that the mystery of the resurrection casts a bright light upon human reason and gives us an ultimate guidance as to what the human person is. The life of Christ and his Eucharistic presence among us, his sacrifice and ours in the Mass. All this gives shape to our story as a human story of grace in view of life after death and life that is eternal. Today, perhaps the deepest unity of the university as a community of learning can only be regained by the recovery of this center, the body of Christ, who gives us an understanding of our body and our soul, and of their unity, and of their ultimate destiny. For a college of learning is many things, a place of words and texts, where truth is treasured and transmitted, and a community of colleagues and deep friendships, is a place where people learn to love and court and dance, and a place where people fight mock wars, be they of rhetoric or rugby. But it is also, above all else, a place that human beings can come to discover God and surrender to him in prayer and authentic sacrifice around the altar of Christ. There, at that hearth, a community of learning finds its deepest home. For there, the glorified Christ illumines the human mind and brings us into that deeper realism about our human existence. He does so by the gift of faith, but also by the gift of right reason. In our search for balance between faith and reason at the heart of the modern university, 
St. Thomas Aquinas is a model and a mentor. If you wish to be ahead of the curve in human history, be a Thomist. His vision of the human person is uniquely compatible with a realistic belief in the resurrection of the dead. And he helps us to see, even in our own age, how faith in the Word made flesh provides a vivid, rich illumination to our human reason. But don't take my word for it. Listen to the successor of Peter. He is, after all, the rock of Christ, and against him the gates of hell cannot prevail. Thank you. not always very easy to understand. Okay. I mean, he's, he's, he's a bit ambiguous about whether the soul as a principle survives death. So I think he's open to the idea of, t- of total annihilation and death and total recomposition immediately following death. He has other, he does diverse writings on this and there are places where he speculates about an afterlife of a soul but um, there is a, a very, um, there's a strong strand of thinking in modern theology about the idea that we don't need to hold on to the doctrine of the immaterial soul. And this has found its way into some Catholic thinking. And, and Ratzinger is very, uh, I think centrally in his book on eschatology, he wants to contest that. Further questions? Professor Lupiel. Thank you, Father White. You really honored the saint on his day. Uh, a couple of questions that may be slightly peripheral, they're always bugging me. Why did the Virgin die? That's one question. I don't know if you can give me your answer or yeah. the Church's answer, if there is an answer. And okay. if, if time, uh, it's sort of time is a function of uh, ourselves when we have our bodies, what is consciousness like while we're separated? Is that a possible question? Thank you. Um, those are two marvelously difficult questions, um, but but they're the kinds of questions that uh, a Dominican loves, and you spend your life thinking about them, don't you? Um, as to the first, the Church has not definitively stated that the Virgin Mary died. Now there is the more traditional mainstream teaching of the Eastern Church, held by many in the West, embodied, for example, in the teaching of John Damascene, that she did die in co-solidarity with Christ. We do have to hold that. Uh, and then there's the, the you might call it the minority teaching represented in an exemplary way by Francis de Sales that she experienced a kind of ecstasy of love in which the body and soul were glorified. John Paul II uh, leaned heavily toward the first theory in uh, his Wednesday audiences, but he didn't he didn't define that in any way. Um, so you're free to hold either. I, I do hold the, the old the older traditional view. And I think it's very important at any rate to say whatever the, the Virgin Mary's grace as a whole 
interesting question. Her grace is not ident wholly identical with ours, but it cl it's clear that the Virgin Mary's grace is primarily Christological grace. She has the grace of Christ and not, you might say, the grace of the original state of Adam and Eve. So while she and Christ are freed from certain uh, conditions of our fallen human nature, most notably the tendency towards concupiscence and the disordered relationship between the, the sensate powers and the intellectual powers. Um, I mean, they don't in experience internal temptations or, or internal falls the way human beings do who are um, besides them, other children of Adam and Eve. Um, nevertheless, they're subject to death. And I think we have to hold that uh, if Christ is subject to death, it's reasonable to think the Virgin Mary is. Now Aquinas, when he argues about why this is the case, says it's so that Christ could, in and through his death and, and his passion, his death and resurrection, um, both live and manifest to us the depths of the divine love for us by meritoriously taking, uh, taking on our human life in order to live a meritorious human death for us. So then that, in that reading, the Virgin Mary would also have died a, an exemplary death for us to teach us how to die in Christ, not because of any punishment of sin that she inherited, but just due to her solidarity with the mystery of the cross and in her what are called co-redemptive merits or her congruent merits of friendship with Christ, like those of a, a, a saint who dies in union with the cross in a way that is uh, associated with the cross such that it, it gains grace for others. Right? So there's some kind of mystery of solidarity with the crucified Christ. As for um, the second question, which is harder, I think, actually, um, what is it like to be a disembodied soul? I think the, the term consciousness um, you know, that term does actually, some people say it's just a modern philosophical term and has no presence in Aquinas. Actually, Aquinas does use that phrase a couple times. He talks about, he talks about the, on the Transfiguration, the, the Father being divinely conscious of the Son, which is amazing, because uh, what does that mean? Um, it's a modern term in its, most of its development, though. Uh, we, we clearly know we can speak negatively of the soul state apart from the body as not implying any kind of dependence on sense phantasms or internal feelings or imaginations. So that's a pretty severe purification of our of our vis-a-vis our, our typical psychological experience. We won't be able to imagine life of the soul outside the body because the imagination is in the sense powers and we lose that, I'm afraid, and the emotional life as well. So that seems like a lot. Um, and Aquinas thinks there has to be a supplement of knowledge given to the soul by infused knowledge akin to what the angels receive. So he thinks that there has to be new knowledge given through infusion to the separated soul. And that it's pretty bad, and in some ways, for the soul to be without a body because we're used to learning through our senses and it's very disturbing for us to think about being a soul without, a mere soul without a body. But he does think the torrent of supernatural grace that is given by elevation into purgatory and the beatific vision eventually uh, consoles the soul greatly for the loss of the body. So there, he does think it's possible for the soul separated from the body to be knowledgeable and happy, m primarily because of new gifts. Yeah. Yes, sir. I think they would be even more fundamental. I think you'd need them even to be able to understand what, what's happening to you in purgatory. I mean, I think the point, the, Aquinas thinks all the habits of the spiritual soul, 
so your habits of the intellect and will are, are retained. So, if, for example, um, especially especially habits of thinking about God. Interestingly, you know. So, if you're thinking about God philosophically or theologically, Aquinas thinks you're not wasting your time. It can actually endure. But other forms of habits of knowledge r r remain. The problem is they can't exercise themselves fully without a body because we need the abstraction from the sense phantasms. We normally, as rational animals, uh, we have an immaterial intellect, but it, it's, it's kind of exercising itself based on sense phantasms. And we won't have those without the body. So fundamentally, even to, as it were, understand itself, the soul is going to need the supplement of uh, some kind of natural infused forms, and then that can be the basis for um, the purgatory, a, a sort of work, supernatural work of purgatory. Um, the beatific vision, however, is different. That's not an infused set of ideas or species. That's an, an immediate perception of God, uh, which is something far above even something like angelic knowledge. So ultimately, he thinks we enter into a communion with God that goes far beyond even the highest knowledge of natural knowledge of angels or men. Um, I mean, I do think it's helpful for us in our pure, in our, in our mere mortal state to, to think about these things sometimes with poetry. Now, Dante is the most, you know, vi sort of vividly corporeal of thinkers about the afterlife, although very sublime, also spiritually. But Newman's um, uh, Dream of Gerontius is a very beautiful poetic rendition of the soul coming before God in judgment. It's a sort of attempt to portray this in poetic images. Of course, that's imperfect, but I, I, I think it's a helpful um, meditation on Newman's part about going into the state of purgatory. Yeah, sure. Uh, maybe two or three more questions. Oui. Uh, thank you. Um, this riddle of the Sphinx, um, that, that the resurrection answers so nicely, is there um, a danger of putting too fine a point on it, such that the gratuity of grace is lost or now you can tell this guy was trained by Dominicans at Dominican House of Studies. He's challenging me on whether I'm veering into. <laughs> well, yeah, or even even I think he's thinking of De Lubac. And anyway, a little humani generis language there from 1951. Pius XII. I teach this material, and I teach <laughs> and I teach against the position that he's assailing. So I'm. <clears throat> I'm sensitive to the remark. Um, now, yeah, I'm going to the, what, what did Ratzinger say? This It's interesting. Um, let me just find it. Um, what thus emerges is an anthropological logic which shows the resurrection to be a postulate of human existence. That's a bit strong, isn't it? So I, I assimilated him to St. Thomas there. Uh, I mean, Aquinas does argue that, um, it's, it's striking, he says, Aquinas does argue in the Summa Contra Gentiles, that the resurrection of the body is not strict, is in its efficient causality, it's miraculous, but in its formal causality, it's natural. It's natural to have a body and a soul united forever. So I think there's a certain way in which um, uh, there's a, I mean, and, and if you if you pair that with the idea, so once, okay, so on the one hand, you've got the problem that it's natural to die from the physiological standpoint, it's unnatural to die from the point of view of the integration of spiritual soul and body. So that seems to leave at least a touchstone for the resurrection. On the other hand, when the doctrine's revealed to you and, and kind of prescribed to you, you can see there's something natural about it. But getting the efficient cause that gets you from one to the other is purely gratuitous. 
Right? So you can't derive from the, um, the, the fittingness we're speaking about is not a fittingness that could be uh, from which you could derive the, super, the necessity of the supernatural mystery, which is given to us uniquely through revelation. Okay? But among the mysteries that are revealed, this is one where Aquinas thinks it's particularly congruent with human reason, even as much or more so than original sin. Um, and far less so, I think, than the Trinity, you know, or the Incarnation. Uh, I see a couple of hands back there. You, sir, they're sitting down. I th- yeah, you. I, I saw your hand first, I think. Think that I do you think that that's different from what I argued? No, I, I, I'm you just want me to say that more explicitly? In other words, in other words is it fair to say that it's not enough? Is what's it fair not to say that it's not enough? The mystery of the resurrection is not Well, so the argument I was using was from Ratzinger, okay? And so he's saying something similar, I think, to what you're saying. Or maybe we should invert it. You're saying something similar to what he's saying. But I think the point is he's making is that. The mystery itself is so profound in terms of what it, it, it invites us to. The mystery of the resurrection is very profound in that it invites us to recast our whole understanding of human existence. And it took a long time for, he says, philosophy and metaphysics to catch up with the full implications. And so in one sense you could say it's a stimulus to think about the human person. But my argument was also, I, at one point I said it quickly, but at the end I said, it's not just that the resurrection changes our concept of the human person, but our metaphysics of the human person is essential, including a doctrine of immateriality and of hylomorphic unity, as understood by Aquinas philosophically, in order to get the resurrection right, in order to understand the theology, so that they are, I was arguing for co, co-penetration. Well, listen, okay, so interesting. Uh, you're, you're the kind of, I mean, you sound like the Thomists I live with, right? And w- one thing we tend to do, one thing we tend to do is we, we get on the 19th century, 20, early 20th century train, and we say, look, the way we need to interact with modernity is by rethinking, is by first getting our metaphysics and our philosophy straight, and once we've gotten out of the modern errors that are philosophical and plague human reason and modernity, then we'll see that the faith and reason thing co-align. And that's Leo Thirteenth. And I mean, I'm you know totally on board with all that. But, but in that res- in some respects, yes, Rahner is post-Kantian. He's got a sort of transcendental anthropology from Kant. 
He's got all kinds of Hegelian stuff going on, especially on the resurrection. He even uses Hegelian language about being subsumed into the, assimilated into the resurrection of Christ and a kind of Hegelian philosophy of history. That being said, on some fundamental level, Rahner thinks the same thing as the Thomists. He thinks if we get the philosophy right as a starting point, then we'll be able to dialogue with modernity profitably. Now, he thinks that we need a lot more Kant and Hegel in there, and combining that with things from Aquinas, we would say, no, 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 it's adulteration, let's not have Kant and Hegel messing up our Thomism, and I would be the first person carrying the flag. But the, and that's all true, I'm fine with all that. The, the problem is the other side that Ratzinger is emphasizing is that it's not just, I mean, so this is the thing I'm always telling the brothers, it is, it is a lot of it is about getting your metaphysics and philosophy right, but part of it is how theology, qua theology, has changed the history of human thought. And my point here is that the mysteries, because the problem is if you don't admit that, then you might be a Thomist philosopher, but you still end up kind of giving everything to human reason. And, and the thing is, the study of the mysteries changes our understanding of who we are. The study of the Trinity, the study of the beatific vision, the study of the Incarnation, and the study of the Resurrection, that the mysteries enlighten human reason, and they challenge us to develop a philosophy that's more adequate to the cooperation with that mystery. So I'm not disagreeing with you, I'm just trying to also emphasize the other side of the, of the baton. Okay. Can I take one more? Are we, are, yeah, do we have time? Okay, I saw your hand, sir. Uh, you spoke about the, the mystery of faith in the resurrection, but also the inherent rationality. And just in everyday language, that seems like it would be a paradox where those two would be somewhat mutually exclusive. But um, with like the coalescence of faith and reason, is there is there a possibility that one could exist on its own as far as the our understanding of the resurrection, or is there a necessary dependence between the two? When you say one could exist on its own, what do you uh, mean? One what? The, the, the rationality of natural philosophy versus the mystery of faith and theology. Is yeah. Well, this is, I mean, you're raising the same question that I was raised here on the front row, and it's very uh, acute. Uh, part of the issue is that Aquinas, when, he talk, when Aquinas talks about rationality, I mean, we, we tend, because of Vatican I and because we've been fighting against rationalists for hundreds of years, to have a pretty strict division between you know, philosophical rationality and what it can demonstrate versus theological revelation and what is given to us knowing faith. And that, in general, I tend to be pretty sympathetic to a strong distinction. And I would love to see a revival of Vatican I on faith and reason because I think it's a very valuable document to our own time. That being said, Aquinas has a category that's a little bit between the two and that he uses some, in very different ways this language of convenientia or fittingness. And so, you know, you have to be open to the fact that there's places, even philosophy can see that there's places that philosophy can't go, but that need to be resolved. I mean, the philosopher can see, if, if he's really, like, you know, an excellent, metaphysically well-calibrated philosopher, that the soul is somehow immaterial and that there's some way in which something in the soul lives on after death, a la Socrates and the Phaedo and Plato and Aristotle and so on. But then none of them know what happens after death. And they also know that the world of religion claims to placate the gods or offer sacrifices or make intercessions. I mean, you've got, if you read Virgil, you know, it's, a, it's like religious fanaticism. It's wonderful, but they're having sacrifices every five seconds for the, for the dead. And it's, it's like Italian Catholics before they got Catholicism. But, <laughs> you see, the thing is, 
that there's something about Virgil that's really hu- that's really human. Like they don't they know there's stuff going on after death, and they don't know what it is, but they know they better they need to be up to speed on getting ready for it. And that's that's much more human than our culture, in terms of the way to live religiously with death in the face of uncertainty. And that's what Aquinas more Aquinas is a sort of category of fittingness, this fitting uh, rational um, belief that the soul and body are meant to be reunited. That doesn't mean you can show that God will do it. But if God has said otherwhere, uh, elsewhere that he's revealed that he is doing it, has done it, will do it some more, then uh, there becomes that, that harmony is, is um, meaningful. In the sense that it, it looks like philosophy can show a fittingness to what is, is revealed in scripture, a bond. But it's not a bond that is a demonstration. Um, it could, I mean, yes, I mean, I think are the preambula fide, which are different. I think it'd be, the immateriality of the soul goes, uh, strictly speaking, under the preambula fide. The motives of credibility um, um, are things like the historical miracles, because that really get into the object of faith. Um, I, think, I think there's ways in which the argument I'm making could be arranged under either one of those two, because if you can work from the resurrection, towards the rationality, the fact that it answers a rational need in us, a rationally discernible need, that would be more like motives of credibility. Or from the preambula fide, the fact that the immateriality of the soul, the soul being the form of the body, that works towards the desire for a resurrection. Thank you very much. Okay.